Let's spread a song so you can sing along with one special guest star or two. You like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song, a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals. I'm your host, Sean, and with me today is a returning guest who, I mean, this is his third time on, but also his second episode by himself. It's Mark Bonatti, everyone. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I mean, you brought theater history with you today right i figured we change it up from my you know tour of the misogynistic men movies and you know give howard keel a rest for a little while and then you know as as well as a non-animated but like in the same world kind of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah We're we're here today to talk about cradle will rock or the cradle will rock I'm not sure what title it is. Well, the musical was Cradle, The Cradle Will Rock, but the movie cut out the the for some reason. It's just Cradle Will Rock. Are you sure about that? Because I am positive about that. When I rented it on Amazon, it says The Cradle Will Rock. So They are wrong. Great. Um, The movie (laughs) came out in 1999. Screenplay by Tim Robbins. Yes, the actor. Yes. Uh, Music and lyrics by Mark Blitzstein, uh, directed by Tim Robbins, yes, the actor. And according to IMDb, a true story of politics and art in the 1930s U.S., focusing on a leftist musical drama and attempts to top its own, its production. And attempts to top its production. Wait, hold on. Is that it? Attempts to top its production? I may have fucked up on that. To stop its production. Ah, that makes more sense. We're great. We're doing great, everyone. <laughs> Firing on all cylinders. Super duper. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I've never heard of this show before. Mm. And watching this, or at least I don't remember hearing right. about it. College was so long ago. Theater history, whatever. <laughs> but this movie made me want to protest it also made me spiral a little bit down the wikipedia rabbit hole um because there are there's so much happening in this it's a it's a lot of movie and it's a lot of movie and it's like every every character is like an a-list actor (laughs) right I told you when I picked this movie before, I said, everyone is in this movie. Everyone. Everyone. And I'm going to say something controversial. We Uh could have had some cuts, personally. I feel like we could have cut Rockefeller. The whole Diego Rockefeller plotline? I understand why it's there. I get it. But I feel like this could have been turned into a miniseries. Mm-hmm. I had I had this whole rant at, to myself afterwards, where <laughs> I felt like we could have had a three episode miniseries, um, where, uh, where the first episode is about the show, putting up the show and everything. And then the second episode is about the um, federal theater project 
So Mm -hmm. we're going behind the scenes. And then the third episode is the Rockefeller, uh, Diego... Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera storyline. Mussolini, yeah, with uh, Susan Sarandon's character. Because that story actually happened three years before it sure did yeah 34 so i understand why and potentially i feel like this movie is saying that mark blitzstein was like in also inspired by that in real life Mm. Mm -hmm. because like you know it's the wealthy talking about being wealthy but i feel like if we were for a movie a concise movie that already has so many players and moving parts that if we got rid of the Rockefeller storyline, we still would have had that upper class representation with um, Gray, um, Gray Mathers. And then you still could have had Hearst and Rockefeller could have been in there, but like maybe not John Cusack. (laughs) And I feel like the only reason why they expanded on the Rockefeller characters because they had John Cusack. I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a commentary. It's like the real, because, you know, the whole prostitution theme of the show and, like, the real world prostitution going on at the time, I feel like is sort of the the through line there. But, no, I I see that. I like the miniseries idea. Right? Um, I like the scenes where, I I mean, I did like this movie. I will say that. This is my first time watching it. Uh, Before we started recording, I did tell Mark that, I had a slight fear that I was watching the wrong thing. <laughs> because this is based on the real show, The Cradle of Rock. I also thought that this was going to be a horror movie, but I, that's Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That's the Hand That Rocks the Cradle. <laughs> <laughs> so, Which would be a very interesting musical on its own. Yes. Uh, but I was, so I dove into this Because the story of the show is fascinating. And then learning more about the Federal Theater Project is fascinating. What about you? How did you hear about this? Did you watch it like in 1999? You know, I I mean, I was just starting high school in 99. I don't know. I mean, I came into it. I don't know why I watched it. It's, you know, in my high school days, it wasn't a typical. I'm a comedy guy through and through. But. For whatever reason, I've, I mean, I definitely must have seen this movie somewhat towards its release. I mean, and it's just been a favorite of mine. I love the grand scale of it. I love the ensemble-ness uh, of it. And the story of The Cradle of Rock is just so fascinating. And, you know, there's always, people always ask that question. Like, if you go back to opening night of any show in history, what would you go to? And one of my go-tos is The Cradle of Rock. I mean, to be there when that basically protest performance happened uh, would have been really amazing. Um, yeah. And so what, what Mark is talking about is uh, the federal theater project did give the right. It, it basically what I took from it and from what my little research was, is that the federal theater project basically opened regional and community theaters yeah, it was it was like, you know, it was during the depression, the the government had all these work programs going on to put people back to work, including out of work theater actors, which was the federal theater project. So it was a government funded theater project that, you know, was throughout the country. And also they were this is also the time or around the time of the government 
doing a shakedown on communists, allegedly. Yeah, the Red Scare lasted a long time. The Red Scare. So uh, the Federal Theater Project was also a form of censorship or like all projects had to go through them to then get produced is my understanding of it. So like, what do you mean? The, what do you mean? All projects? I mean, so like, so like the Cradle of Little Rock. We'll yeah. use that as an example. They had to present it to the Federal Theater Project to then get approved to perform it. It was more like the Federal Theater Project was producing the show. I mean, other shows ran on Broadway that had nothing to do with the Federal Theater Project. Oh, okay. It wasn't like the government took over the theater. It was just like it's like the, the, this is them getting grants and things like that. Yeah, so it was produced by the Federal Theater Project. Because, I mean, at least in the movie, there is, like, a talk about, you know, propaganda and everything. And it's kind of interesting, because the movie starts with, um, what's her name? (laughs) There's so many people. There's uh, Joan Cusack. No, it starts with Emily Watson. Olive Stanton. Um, Emily Watson in a movie theater where a newsreel happens. And at first I'm like, I don't know why this is here, but in the newsreel, you hear about Nazi Germany and you hear about Adolf Hitler and about how they're censoring the arts. And then this movie's like, ha ha, it's not just there, everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, it's really fascinating. And, you know, the more I watch it throughout my life and, you know, gain more knowledge of history and I find different aspects of the movie fascinating every time I watch it. Because, you know, back in before, it was just the theater was, you know, and that still is the most interesting part. But like, then you really, oh, it's like, oh, this is like the, the budding problem of Hitler and Mussolini in America. and Yeah, and especially we're, we're set in New York, which is such a melting pot. Like we have... We follow uh, John Totoro's uh, character, who's an Italian immigrant, or his parents are Italian immigrants. And so you have them, and you follow that fascism. Which, by the way, looking it up, I think he's the only, like, original character. Well, him and the Countess are the yeah. only original characters to this Yeah, it was his show. character in real life was Howard De Silva. Um, who was uh, the original Judd Fry in Oklahoma um, and the original Ben Franklin in 1776, Howard De Silva. And he, I asked, I actually reached out to Tim Robbins years and years ago saying, hey, I, I'm a huge fan of this movie. I'm curious, you know, you had so many real life figures. Howard De Silva is such an interesting figure. Why did you replace him? Why did you get rid of him? And he said he basically, just, he wanted an Italian character to, to tell that story. Um, so that's why Howard De Silva got the axe uh in his own life because we got susan sarandon who is some sort of like cultural liaison for mussolini but that's for like the upper crust and yeah i think he wanted the people's for you know person. and someone standing up you know and protesting when they really had a lot to lose so to get back into the history of the cradle of rock and we're going know, what a serious episode um, uh, for you. we're go- so they they're putting on this show they're getting funding from the federal theater project the cradle of rock is an opera that is what blitzstein calls it yeah i mean it's we w- i don't think most people would call it if just looking at the work an opera but 
Blitzstein really hated the word musical comedy and um, musical, like all the other terms that are a little more fitting. Um, there is operatic moments and it's sung through, which is why he calls it an opera, but it has yes. a lot of different styles within it. Comedy numbers, really traditional stuff, Gilbert and Sullivan type stuff. So, But they get shut down by the government because it promotes unions and the steelworkers strike is happening at the same time. And so they decide to say, fuck you, a young Orson Welles as well is the yeah, director he was, of this. He was 21 in real life when this happened. Yeah, he looks like he's 40 in this movie. <laughs> I know. But that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so we got, they changed venues and they were going to do basically like a concert style. And the movie depicts that. That whole scene is is really true to life. I think uh, the the musicians didn't end up performing in the house like the actors did, um, as far as I'm I know. I'm not clear about that. But I know the actors, the actors did. And it was Olive who stood up first and really started the whole chain of events, um, just like in the film. But reading the Wikipedia page, the show ended up going to the Mercury Theater uh, as part of its inaugural season in 1937. And they still did that immersive style Mm -hmm. where the cast was sitting in, in the audience and everything, which honestly... I agree with you. I would love to have gone to either the protest or one of these performances. Cause it, I don't know, even watching it at home, I was feeling like I need to make a picket sign or something. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. It was, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. They, they created Orson Welles and John Hausman, uh, Carrie Elwes in the film, John Hausman created the Mercury theater because they were fired. Uh, they were the only two to lose their jobs from this whole creatable rock thing. And so they created the Mercury theater. Uh, group sort of as their own way to do shows and and like and yeah they decided guys, we're gonna do we're gonna do cradle of rock <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so, so but i mean it's 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 all true they 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 gave it wasn't the countess but they gave their lighting designer five bucks to go find a piano um and she went and found her got her landlord to to give her that piano and then they they bribed a truck driver to like put it on a truck and they drove around for a few hours till they found a theater i mean they they all walked up uh so yeah so the the national guard was there blocking the theater from anyone from entering from there getting the costumes all the sheet music uh howard de silva the lead actor was really mad because his toupee was still in the theater and they wouldn't allow him to get his toupee uh he always famously tells and uh so they decided yeah they found this old theater for a hundred bucks that was 21 blocks uptown they all walked the, the audience that was there waiting to go see the show and the reporters, they all walked the 21 blocks up and the, the Venice theater that they ended up getting uh, to do the show was three times bigger than Maxine Elliott's theater that they were going to perform in. So everyone who was going to see the show was allowed to invite two or three friends and it, they filled the theater by the end of the day for the performance. Uh, so it was a three times larger crowd than they were anticipating. Now in the movie, it's a huge theater. It is so, like I was I was in awe too because I know like theaters have undergone construction and things have changed and they may have like split theaters. Well, that's, those theaters. theaters are all demolished. Those were all theaters in like the like 38th Street and 55th. Yeah, those theaters are all gone. But like. Uh, the- seeing that huge theater i was like is this real or is this like 
No, it's I mean that was dramatic license. That they had theaters that big. The Venice, I think, ended up being called Jolson's 59th later before it was torn down. And Maxine Elliott's was down on 38th or 39th Street, the original theater. And now that you say Maxine Elliott's, looking at the cast list on IMDb, now makes sense. Because they're broken up. They broke up groups of characters. Because, like, everyone has a name, but you not everyone's name is said. Right. There's a lot of characters from the... Well, sorry. A lot of people are portraying actual people in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's some names there. Yeah, and I was like, who's Maxine Elliott? I forgot that that was the name of the, the venue and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, uh, somebody... Another thing I felt like we could cut is Carlo. I was like... <laughs> Come on, the scene of him singing in the... When... <laughs> well, so, like... That was the, the funniest I- thing. The idea of Vanessa Redgrave and Paul Giamatti's characters are to like present some sort of levity because mm-hmm, this is a very mm-hmm. serious story. And like, yes, there is that one moment with Cherry Jones when she's in, uh, who plays Hallie Flanagan uh, when she's in front of the the U.S. The House of Un-American Activities, yeah, yeah, and like they. Apparently that dialogue is verbatim. Um, the way the testimony where she, where she corrects somebody, being like Marlo is from Shakespeare's time. Yeah, so great. <laughs> Cherry Jones is fantastic in this movie. But I, so I really loved the Countess. I don't know how you how you it's one of it. my favorite characters in the film. The Countess. She's Vanessa Redgrave is so delightful when she like is jumping up and down and getting to be like a spy she and she's loving it it's it's i i live she's she's the rich person that every thespian wants dreams of cuz like she's the she's that old money upper class lady who loves the arts and is willing to throw money at anybody yeah she's like the ultimate like. patron she is yeah like I, I feel like if <laughs> if my art was to bitch slap myself with a handful of paint, she'd give me money for that, <laughs> and I'd be yeah. like, "Thank you for your money." I'll, I'll, <laughs> thank you, because because there's moments as well when we so when we do see the performance of the Cradle of Rock within the movie Cradle of Rock, uh, I was wondering like, does she get it, like? Is she or is she feeling like I'm part of a protest? Ooh, I'm not. I think she gets it. I think she, you know, she because you know her husband and her have those little conversations where she, I think she lets on that she's a lot smarter than she might seem. You yes, because uh, her husband is dealing with Susan Sarandon's character, who is Mussolini's something. Yeah, the liaison. There's some shady shit going on that I didn't understand while watching it, but I was like, I don't like this. (laughs) Yeah, basically they're laundering money. He's he's like a giant steel worker, and so they're laundering money through the art. Um, Painting. Through paintings, yeah. Um, And the other guy is, is Pulitzer that they deal with a lot in this movie. It's like Pulitzer, who dresses as the cardinal at the end. I thought that was Hearst. Oh, Hearst, yeah same thing because because Hearst 
I I have whole other issues with, <laughs> but it's great <laughs> to see Hurst in there because he is a person that was such a staunch conservative that you're like, okay, this this makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you have because um, the, uh, there's so many stories that are going on in this movie. Well, that's one of the the criticisms it got when it was released that it was just too many. Too many plot lines. And that's, I mean, and that's why I feel like you still could have had this, but like make it a mini series. Because when you have Bill Murray and Tenacious D. (laughs) Oh, man. So great. I understand. We're red, darling. We're pink. We're pink. We're homosexuals. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, there were scenes with them that I was like, this could be cut. That we don't need this. The, the movies, death of vaudeville and yeah. But I, but if you were to do a longer version, I think really the runtime is what's hindering this movie mm. because it is two hours and like fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. and I feel like it needed more mm. to really let us sit in things because there are two time jumps that happen in this movie. I was blo- I, I I was whiplashed, you know, being like, oh, four months later, okay, what? And also another fun fact that you probably know already because you know everything when you come on this podcast. I um, try. So Mark Blitzstein is writing Great Little Rock. Uh, we see that in like this. I don't want to call it a prologue. I think I want to call it Act One because mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. definitely a, it's definitely a three act structure. This movie there's Act One, a time jump; Act Two, another time jump. Act three. So in yeah. Act Act One, you see him figuring out what the show is going to be. And I did a little more research. I did a lot of research on this episode, everyone. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> so Mark Blitzstein writing the show has two apparitions who are guiding him. One is his wife who died of anorexia. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, and this is how I'm wording it. The other one is the astro projection of Bertold Brecht, because Brecht at this time was still alive. So right. it's not a ghostly spirit. It's it's like it's just yeah. It's it's the influence. It's the, it's the influence. The manifestation yeah. of of Brecht's influence. Well, I feel like in history they did meet. Oh yeah, they were they were uh they were close. Uh Cradle Rock is dedicated to Brecht. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, because because uh Blitz uh Blitzstein was shopping the show around, he played it for everybody, he even played it for Brecht. And I think Brecht was the one who did tell him to like think outside the box. Be, yeah, be it was more like older. a literal it was a story of a literal prostitute um before and he, you know, sort of Brecht encouraged him to think more about prostitution in the abstract. Um, I also I also love there's the character Mr. Mister. <laughs> Mr. Mister and Mrs. Mister and, and Junior then Mister, Sister Junior Mister. Mister, Sister Mister. Um and like who was there's another one. Another character that I'm just like, oh you <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, uh you know, um Reverend uh, Salvation and ha- Harry Druggist, who is a druggist, yeah. and that is who um, I forgot who played. Oh, uh, John Bernard. Adair played him. Yeah, John, yeah, yeah. John Adair, who is 
also in this movie, a character in this movie, played that, which I feel like they also changed that name. Or they yeah, changed it was, the name. I think Frank Marvel, who was the older guy, like they sort of switched the names and the roles a little bit there. Yeah. But like in a movie that even claims right before that it's mostly based on true stories. Mostly a true story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the, the timelines of things. But I mean, for when it really counts, they got a lot of stuff dead on. I mean, he did a, Tim Robbins did a lot of research on it. He released a book that accompanied this film what? about like the history of it. Yeah. Yeah, he released the whole. Of course. Yeah, Uh, I'll send you a copy. Yes, Um, I did also find out uh, that Revolt of the Beavers is a real show. It is certainly a real show. Yeah, and it really caused a lot of drama. It did because it's just it's so interesting that like art is layered, and that's also what the show, this movie, is talking about. That yes, it's a fairy tale art of a Revolt of the Beavers. But like, you could read into it because it's art, <laughs> and it kind of, what what I found very fascinating about this movie was the ending, where oh, a um, gut punch of a the final shot. You mean where you have or- the the vaudevillians led by Tenacious D <laughs> doing a vigil for Bill Murray's ventriloquist dummy? Yes, follow me with this, uh, everyone, and they end up in Times Square. And I, I guess it's supposed to feel like it's doomed, like theater is doomed. The House of Un-American Activities is going to, like, destroy theater and everything. But they chose to, like, set it in the present day, uh, so 1999, of Times Square, where you see billboards for shows and you see the Virgin Megastar R.A.P. And you <laughs> see other, other things. And I was like, theater lived on. And so... I think that's what one of the messages is from this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole, yeah, the death, the the vigil is, you know, the death of vaudeville, the death of the Federal Theater Project. Um, and then it's just sort of, and here we are now. Right. And this is, you know, this directly led to the theater of today. And, you know, we think of Cradle Rock as a, if you don't know the show, uh, as a, a really like a drama. And it really has a lot of, humor in it and they talk about it in the like Hallie Flanagan mentioned several times how funny the show is and it's got a lot of humor and lightness within it sort of like this movie which I feel like has that tone of has you know it's it's a drama yeah but it's really got some light comedic tones but I love that final shot when we go into modern day Times Square and even though that a lot of theater is produced not by the government or getting yeah, federal no theaters for... produced by the government. Well, well, th- didn't Hamilton get some grants when it first opened up? Oh, uh, maybe. I mean, but there's, I, mean, there, there... I don't think they get any residuals from it. No, 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 no. But like there, there is no help from the government and theater still remains an art form of protest. I feel like. Yeah, well, I think because it's not run by the government, but at the same time, if we had a national theater then ticket prices maybe wouldn't need to be where they're at. $800 cabaret. <laughs> oh. uh, I mean, speaking you know. Of ha- speaking of Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean. Those tickets, yeah. If if there was, you know, federal subsidies for theater, maybe we could get more people to see it, like the Federal Theater Project. I mean, they they 
that they stated in the film, a quarter of the nation got to see theater for very cheap or free at the time, which was incredible. There was a moment during the performance. I think it's when John Turturro gives like a big impassioned speech towards the end of the show of the mm-hmm. show, the cradle will rock that made me feel like th- there's a moment in 1776 where they're all talking and they're all like, we're just men. We're not gods. Uh, so I was like, Ooh, chills, you know, to be like, this is history. And for John Turturro in 1998, we'll say, because mm-hmm. that's probably when they filmed it. Uh, to say those lines that were written in the 30s about the 30s, it probably felt a little similar where it's like, I'm saying the words. I'm, I am an actor playing a character who is a real person who probably felt like this. Well, the example of a real person because he's playing, you know, not Mr. Mr. Yeah, but Larry, Larry Foreman. Larry Foreman, yes. Have you looked at pictures of the actual people, by the way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I will do this on the, on the Instagram. They did a great job casting Cherry Jones and Emily Watson to play their <laughs> respective figures. They look so like yeah. I'm on the Cradle Rock page and I'm looking at the synopsis and there's a picture of Olive Stanton. I mean, they also changed her story, by the way, her yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm looking at she the was a, she was an actress she was a working actress all of yeah. Stanley. she wasn't yeah. a homeless but, she, but I feel like what they changed for her is still a very real feeling to this day because yeah. you know you come to New people come to New York to make it big on Broadway and everything and they did their local productions that you know. Although, yes, they may have been the lead in that. They're probably going to get, you know, a, like just an audition and no callback or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so I honestly, when she was at the ticket at that counter talking to Joan Cusack, I was like, this is real. This is a real feeling. Oh, God, it's it's so extraordinary. I feel like that really speaks. I mean, yes, he didn't. Blitzstein didn't write the film Cradle Rock, but uh, I feel like it really he I, I was somebody I, I watched a thing and they said it really captures the how did they phrase it it was like he can capture the future or or the timelessness of something and yeah. we were they were these people were talking about how the 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 themes of the show from the 30s are still so relevant relevant to this day relevant to this day and that interview was from 1964 that i was watching and it's still relevant today. It's so it's so sad. Um, yeah. Where where where, where, where brain think brain think think brain. Um, <laughs> sorry, there's just there's just all this information I just pro- I processed right before recording that I'm like, let's work on it it all out. Um, Can we talk about Vicky Clark for a second, Victoria Clark? Yeah, who was I? Who did she play? She was one of the cast members of. She was the one who, yes. who who plays Miss Mrs. Mister, who at the end like is really sweet to Olive and like Olive agrees she lets Olive stay on her floor at the very end of the show. Yes, that's yes. Victoria Clark. There's so many theater people in this um, movie. You also have Audra McDonald's 
voice, which I was yeah. a little upset that we didn't get to see the queen herself. Right. Um, Because there are moments... Oh, John Carpenter was in this movie. What? Everyone is in this movie. Everyone. Carla Shuffle? I don't know how to say her name. Who played Jane Eyre and Jane Eyre back in the day. She was the female beaver. I mean, like, everyone in this movie is somebody. They cast a couple of other Broadway people to sing the songs uh, when Blitzstein was writing it in Act 1 to sing it. And that's when you hear Audra McDonald's angelic voice. Yeah. Have you actually seen a production of this? Of the Cradle I have Rock? not seen a live production of it. No, they did it at Encores not too long ago, but I, for whatever reason, did not get to see it. I thought so. Because I've been... I know I've been... I thought I've been seeing, like, a revival was happening of it. But I, I think... My my brain is just broken because well <laughs> my brain is broken because uh, the only thing I can find is like the classic stage company's production of it in the that 80s happened with, with Patty Lapone. No, it ha- There was oh. one like in 2018. Oh yeah, yeah. and they and, yeah they did it at Encores not not too long ago. Uh I wish yeah. I, I want to see it. It seems really interesting. It's and it's often done in the. Uh, the now legendary style of performing in the house. That's sort of, it's not always done like that, but often is done like that. There was one performance though, with the full staging, the the glass theater, that was all real. There was a invited dress the night before the production got shut down. So there was one performance as intended by Orson Welles. And there was a bunch of theater people there, uh, George S. Kaufman and, Moss Hart were there. It was it's supposedly wow. very, very good. Um, but of course it was eclipsed there's, by the There's something though, because even I mean, I know it's dramatized in the movie. It's exaggerated a little bit. So that QDQ that fails was really oh my God, yeah, it's a rough the set, the set, the glass breaks and everything. I, I don't know the show, and from what I've read about the show, it seems like they were going in the complete opposite direction. Like, with all the glass and everything, it felt, like, overindulgent. It, well, I think that was Orson Welles' original concept. I think he wanted it to be big, brass, bold Broadway to sort of get the the the, the rich uh, Broadway people into the theater and then sort of subvert them with the story. The Vanessa Redgraves, right? Yeah, I think that was get their husbands, get her husband to see the show and then hit them with the story underneath. I I think that that was Orson Welles' concept. Well, so Orson Welles did write a screenplay for The Cradle of Rock. Yeah, he did, and he released it, um, but that's not what was filmed. No, uh, and apparently Tim Robbins did not read it. It yeah, was, I, haven't, I haven't been able to find a copy. I don't have a copy of that. I've never read it. It was... I, I don't think he released it. From my understanding, it was published, like, after he died. Mm. Mm-hmm. In, 19, in 1984. Well, there you go. It did also make me wonder, because this movie is set in the 30s, and I forgot when Citizen Kane came out. Uh, he hadn't gone to film yet. I think... What do I want to say, like, 44 for Citizen 41. Kane? 41 okay so this so was, was 37 he was on his way um is there anything else you want to talk about um 
I just... Oh, you know, one person we didn't mention. Sorry to jump jump. Oh, no, go for it. I asked you and we didn't mention her. Joan Cusack is in Joan this. Joan Cusack is so good in this. She's good she, in everything she does. She plays a Karen. <laughs> she sure does. She for, sure does. For a modern oh. phrase. Um, so Hazel Hoffman, who she plays, I believe is also another made up person. Yeah, um, I, I, don't, I don't. I mean, but, maybe there was some, I mean, maybe there's testimony. I don't, I don't know. But uh, she but represents. Actual tes- yeah. The, the narcs of the. Yes. Of the, where, of the federal theater project. Where they're telling the quote unquote truth behind it, which is layered in racism. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like she is, but yeah, a lot of the... <laughs> no, the no, she is. People... Is she? Well, at least when she holds that meeting about, uh, with the other acts. Right, they're all up... they're all racist, but is they're she... They're all racist. She's racist by omission, I Oh, feel well, like. sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because she doesn't stop them. I did, that is uh, true. I mean, I looked up as well, while reading about the Cradle of Rock, um, the, the show that they did have a black choreographer. There are pictures on the Wikipedia page of him teaching uh, them the choreography. They also had a black chorus behind them. Mm-hmm. And the um, the all-black Scottish play. <laughs> that right, they... which is also real. I mean, the Voodoo, yes, Mac... Voodoo, Mac... yeah, the Voodoo Macbeth. Voodoo Macbeth, yeah. Um, oh, well, it's the nickname for it. Oh, they didn't so, actually call it that. Uh, I don't think so. Mm. <laughs> I think it's just the it, um, according just to the Wikipedia page, it's a common nickname for the Federal Project's uh, 1936 production of William Shakespeare Macbeth. Yeah. Well, that one seems really racist that we're calling it that. <laughs> I thought yes. that was like, what they actually called it. But yeah, uh, I mean, but I remember you... the, I have a picture of the of the poster in my head of this really cool green poster that maybe I'm making up in my mind for that production of Macbeth. Maybe, but uh, in that meeting that she ho- that Hazel hosts, there's that one woman who was spouting things about one even asked me color. to dinner. Yeah, and it's like okay, well, I understand. I see. I see your racism. I understand you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand you're happening because that happened. But like, yeah, I don't understand. Okay, so <laughs> she. And Bill Murray have scenes together and everything. Mm-hmm. She takes him to Washington to have to testify as well, or does she testify? No, she only? she just testifies. He he doesn't. I don't think his heart is really in it. I you know uh, he just thought they, he, she was they're pretty. practicing. Yeah, and he tells that joke that really offends her, and she hides him behind the clothes, which is always so funny to me when she's she backs up into like the closet. And like he says, I'm attracted to you, and you just hear this oh, from the from the closet. Oh um, God, yeah. And so everyone hates him because of her, then because of her testimony. Yeah, well, he's obviously outspoken. I mean, he in the very opening when we see him in line, he's calling everyone Reds and communists and stuff. So maybe I don't know. I don't believe he in the film at least he goes to Washington. Maybe he just. Yeah, maybe just by association. That's a good point. I don't know why everyone knows that he's because because well, that whole that's that scene that you quoted with Tenacious D, um, 
Jack Black and uh, Kyle Glass, uh, Gas, everyone, uh, when they say that they're not reds, they're pinks and everything. I'm like, did he actually go to Washington or did he? Is that before his crazy uh right before his meltdown yes yeah okay so i mean I, i'm sure everyone must have known i'm sure he wasn't quiet about it but i don't think he testified where at least so not he, in the film so he has a meltdown on stage because everyone is against him and um he's feeling the pressure of like losing his job basically yeah i mean his art form was dying vaudeville well, was on the way out it was well, dying that and the federal theater project is cutting what do they say like 20 percent of yeah because of because of the testimony so you see the two of them can you see bill murray and jim cusack console each other and i'm just like "Mm -mm, i'm not i'm not falling for this you're not making me feel things for you two no i don't think you're supposed to i think you know i don't i don't think you're supposed to i also wish that during the sequence uh when they're break when you see the workers destroying Diego mm. Rivera's mural mm-hmm. that we saw some like I feel like we saw some uncertainty at the end where the workers on one of the um scaffolding or whatever uh being like we just did that that just happened but I wish we saw it in the process of like them destroying the art because that's that was a also another like a lot is happening montage because yeah. they're sing is that when they're singing Cradle Rock? Yeah, that's a whole montage. It's, it sort of starts and stops, but yeah, it's There's yeah, a lot. It, it's incredible. And I love the scene that with um, Susan Sarandon and Diego Rivera when you know it's because it's really interesting. It's like this is my art. It's like, well, no, you were hired to do. If you want to do your revolution art go do it on the side of a building for free. You're being paid to do this lobby. So it's, it's, and it goes back to that prostitution thing. It's, it's It's really fascinating. It was a, it was a thing that I also was arguing by myself because I watched it by myself. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for this conversation where I was like, I feel like both sides, the Rockefeller and Diego Rivera are both in the wrong and in the right at points. Hmm. Um. But I feel like overall, nobody's right. Yeah, and, and you know, and I, I mentioned earlier that different aspects of the film jump out of me every time. This last time, I found the conversation with Rockefeller and Hearst and uh, the steelworker husband, where they're like, "Well, we can shape culture. Just you know, pay this." And I found that the most to be the most chilling conversation that I never really thought about the previous times when how how his you know it's like who lives who dies who tells your story and money often tells the story and these men and their agendas and get to decide culture and and what lives and it really is haunting uh i think that's the scene that made the opening under made me understand the opening because the film reel is happening and i'm like i understand i'm supposed to be paying attention to what's being said but I'm a millennial, so <laughs> so my brain wandered. But it wasn't until that scene and then after the movie, while I was digesting what I watched, I was like, oh, shit. This is what Tim Robbins is saying. This is what's happening. Because 
again, I watched this and then I was like, well, I hope this is what we're talking about today. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise, we're going to talk about this movie. <laughs> Woo! Can you imagine if I hadn't seen it? Uh, um, no, it's... But it's it, it, I, I encourage everyone to watch this movie. It's it's I'm gonna... a history lesson through theater. It's the story of one of the most important uh, landmark musicals in history. Um, I also had a funny thought while yes. while thinking about this. So Tenacious D is in this movie, right? Both of them together. Do you think they got the idea for tribute for from this movie? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Because so, then tribute led to Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, one of my favorite movies. Which is also a musical. We could talk about that we can in a future yes, episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you seen that movie? Bits and parts. It's brilliant. And it is a musical. Um, so if Cradle of Rock led to Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, I think I would be the happiest boy in the world right now. Because it, my, my brain was like, okay, so Tribute is a song that's paying tribute to a number one song. Mm-hmm. It is not the number one song. It is like in um in another movie I've done that I doubt you've seen. It's called The Legend of the Stardust Brothers. It's an eighties Japanese musical no. movie where they they also have a song in there that is the same. Where it's like it's paying tribute to their number one song, but it's not the number. But one it's song. not the number. <laughs> it's just a tribute. So then, uh... this movie, although we do see the performance of Cradle or Rock, I feel like this movie is the tribute to Cradle or Rock and, and the things that like was happening around it. Yeah, so it's it's that's art where, imitates that's my life, mind, imitates art. It's that's where my mind was like, oh yeah, they got the idea for tribute from Tim Robbins. Yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. And I want to find out now. Uh, well, you have Tim Robinson's number. You can ask him. <laughs> I will ask. I feel like I reached out. Yeah, years ago, I threw an email or something. You know what I, you know, the little girl, this is totally random. Uh, John Turturro, his littlest daughter is the eldest daughter from Modern Family. Oh, shit. Sarah Hyland. Yeah. Oh, shit. So Even everyone she's in this. is in this movie. <laughs> everyone. Well, or they will become everyone. Right? Yeah. There's. <laughs> Um, it's great. But Mark, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into Sharp and Flat? For no. real this time. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we covered it. I I feel like the people listening are going to be like, what is this movie? Um, well, because it's so this, fascinating. This movie is dense. I will yeah. say it is two hours and 15 minutes. I only watched it once for this recording, but I feel like I'm going, I would like to revisit it. It's definitely future. a movie worth it's and I love movies that have me racing to Wikipedia and like have a million yes. tabs open. And this is definitely one of those. It's like, oh, oh my god, I want to know about Hallie Flanagan. Oh my god, I want to know about Revolt of the Beavers. Oh my god, I want to know about you know uh, more these... about the Federal Theater Project. Yeah, I, wanna, yeah. I I, I and, read I read almost the entire page on the Cradle of Rock, the show. So I'm ready to throw down history. Let's um do it. But let's get into Sharp and Flat, shall we? Yeah. Sharp Flat. So 
in this section, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it or thought it could change, it's flat. What do you want to start with? Are we doing sharps? I'm asking, do you want to start with sharps? Yeah, let's start with sharps. Okay. I love Mark Blitzstein's writing the show, especially in the park, when he's like at the piano in his brain. And his that was wife well done, yes. and Brecht are there and he's watching the people. I love both of those segments. I also love the first time when he's talking to his wife and we first realize she's dead. And she's like, I, I don't have an opinion. I'm not even here. And he turns around and she's gone. Because, you know, I that that's one of my favorite sections of the film. Which has one of my sharps, Audra's voice. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you're right. I, I wish we could have seen her sing Joe Worker in person. Because there were moments where, like, especially when he was in the jail cell, which was supposed to, I guess, be the inspiration. I don't know how true that is in real life, but that's the inspiration for the jail scene in The Cradle of Rock. So where where those actors are playing out his script um, I feel like if we, I, I wish we saw her. I really do. I love Audra. Yeah. yeah, I agree. But yeah, he he wrote Credible Rock. Blitzstein wrote it in five months. Through, I mean, his wife died of anorexia, and then he just, as grief, threw himself into this new musical. So that yes. was very uh, true. Him, I mean, the the trauma of losing her, even though he was gay, processing that death. Um, so yeah. Um. Another shop I have is for everyone giving a thousand. There's a reason why these are these actors. <laughs> like, like even though they're they probably looked around and like, oh, everyone's here, okay, and, and like nobody was coasting. Everybody gave it at yeah, all. They're everyone all... gets their moments to shine. Even though Susan Sarandon is probably in what five minutes of the movie in total, maybe 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 ten minutes, but like. She's she's not the star. There, I feel like there is no star. This is a true ensemble piece, and everyone like ate it up. <laughs> yeah, they really they really did. Every, um, yeah, everyone has everyone shines in this film. So I did. I do agree with you that that scene where he's playing in the park and the piano, and he's like, it's a mashup of fantasy and reality happening, is sharp worthy. My although I sharped the the scene in the basement of the theater after the failed Q to Q, <laughs> where it's just this melange Every, of scenes going on at the same time. Everyone is yelling, and I wonder how that was scripted. You know, I'll have to check in the book that Tim Robbins released. It has the full screenplay in the book. Because there's there's that scene and then there's the scene later where they're trying to figure out where to go that are both played the same way where it's the cameras walking around and you're and you're listening into snippets of conversation. So we're walking into middle of conversations happening and then we're following like, you know, Carrie Elway's fighting with firing himself (laughs) firing himself and then also fighting with orson wells and um and and then he's on the phone and he finds the theater and everyone's rejoicing like it is so well done and i was like how much of this is scripted and how much of this is improvised i wonder and you know i'm a person if there's too much noise if like 
the TV is on and my wife is talking and one of my kids starts talking. If I get to three, I can't deal with it anymore. And I have to, something's got to stop. But in those scenes, I never felt overwhelmed. I never felt distracted. I was able to uh, hone in on what I needed to and follow these snippets. It, it mm-hmm. is that you're so right. So well done. Those scenes. Uh, but uh, I, I really loved the failed Q to Q scene. Cause that is also another real feeling. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. And she starts crying and he's like, Oh God, don't cry. And <laughs> yeah. you know, like I'm uh, going home or, or like, I have to go get my kids. I have to go see my kids, you know? Yeah. Um, I also want to sharp Cherry Jones and Vanessa Redgrave. Um, they were fantastic. Everyone was fantastic, but I really appreciated those two women. Um, like they both delivered a great performance, especially Vanessa Redgrave playing. Oh. Like honestly, I hope she was actually having fun. You, I mean. Uh... She's obviously a brilliant actress, so I would believe it if she wasn't. But, I mean, you can feel the joy, and she's just so excited to be there. But not in a passive... I don't know. She she believes in it, and she's just having fun. She, she's she got the money. She's living life. She's, she's living it. She's living for it, literally. She felt like... Okay, follow me with this analogy. All right. In season two of The Umbrella Academy... Uh-huh. There is that one character whose name I forget becomes a cult leader. And oh, yeah. he has Klaus. Klaus, yes. Yeah. And he has a rich woman who follows him around. I mean, granted, it's a totally different vibe, but it's a similar situation where you have a rich older woman who is just like yay kids go figure it out (laughs) let me let me let me help let me oh i'm a high society lady it sounds like she has money but also she doesn't at the same time it's like her husband's money but she has influence so at least in this world the countess that that vanessa redgrave's character is has some sort of influence so the fact that she's even there is something big yeah yeah, it's interesting. In in the real in the real world, they got the hundred dollars to rent the Venice Theater. They borrowed money from members of the press. John Hausman wow. borrowed borrowed money from the from the press. Yeah, the first GoFundMe, everyone. There you go. It was for <laughs> Cradle of Rock. Uh, do you have any other sharps? Yes. Uh, being a father, uh, I often when I rewatch things now after being a father, I notice other things. Um, and one moment really struck me is when. In the show, within the show, in Cradle, in the the Cradle Rock, um, when Mister Mister offers Larry Foreman a buttload of money to sort of give in and give him what he wants, and he, there's that moment where he hands him the check, and in the audience, it starts to focus in on John Turturro's wife, but then passes her by and focuses in on his son, and you see Ooh. him really watching, and. And then he, you know, he crumples up the the check, the John Turturro's character, and and it really resonates with the son. And I feel like that was his, uh, John Turturro's character's whole journey is, what am I teaching my kids? You know, can I take the, my family's money, even though they are supporting fascists? But that means we live in a rat-infested place. And so at that that moment and him focusing on the son really 
knocked me this uh, on this last rewatch. That was a big sharp for me this time. And earlier in the movie, that boy was like, was asked John Turturro, are we poor? Are we going to be homeless? What's going on here? Yeah. And so it's like the American dream for parents where you want your children to succeed and do better than you. Spoken from somebody who doesn't have children. <laughs> yeah, right. And it also speaks to the power of theater. This was mm. a play teaching what sometimes real life is too complicated to see. Seeing it in a fictionalized manner can can make all the difference. And then you think about the revolt of the beavers, and you know, it just I don't know. I I love this film so much. Because they have love- they have they have a moment. Uh, earlier in the film with the Federal Theater Project where they're like, we're also, not only are we employing theater people, but like, we're also introducing theater to a lot of people. And that also got, that got me thinking of like the movie versions of musicals, the, the lives, even though, yes, we can, we here in New York, we in theater can judge it, judge them harshly. Uh, the goal, though, is to introduce theater to people who don't have theater readily available. Absolutely. So, and, you know, <laughs> we all crap on them. I've actually never seen the first one. I've somehow seen the second one. But, like, theater is so big right now. And high school musical, I think, is a much bigger part of that than we would like to admit. Oh, for introducing these kids. Totally. to. So, I mean, all theater is important. Um, but when you can teach a little... Theater is number one uh, responsibility is to entertain above all else, then educate. Some people will argue with me that it's the other way around. But uh, so when you can do both and inspire and teach, maybe without them even realizing it, that's uh, when it's really special. Well, because then there are also shows that are like, I'm not going to learn anything from Rock of Ages. No. No. But... that's okay. Some, yeah, and you don't always okay. need to learn something. Um, right. So, like, yes, I agree with you that, like, entertainment first. And then even, like, it's a form of escapism. Like, that's also what movies are. Granted, this movie made made us not really escape. It made us delve further into it. But, like, that is also, that's... But you, that you're escaping happens. into feeling, I mean, you know, on a very superficial, you're, you're feeling like you're protesting watching this movie. You feel yes. inspired. I mean, that's, you know, that you're delving into this world of of, of action and history and importance. Yeah. yeah. So escapism takes all forms. Yeah. Any other um, sharps? <laughs> on a less serious note, when... when Hallie Flanagan and they're talking about Revolt of the Beavers and you know he's like they're the Beavers are you know Mr. Beaver is a a big fat communist and she's like it's a he's a beaver he's a big bad beaver (laughs) that whole beaver speech is one of my favorite moments and he's a bad beaver uh yeah anyway I also love the moment afterward after her hearing um where it's like her and her co-workers are hanging out in the committee chambers or wherever Mm -hmm. And they start play acting, but it's true what they're saying. And so, like, even though, yes, they're taking the piss of everything, and yes, they're making fun of the fact that that guy didn't know who Marlo was, uh, or understood that Marlo was, isn't a communist. 
and right. somehow it's... likens communism to Greeks. Yeah, um, well, we don't know when it started. I mean, that's it's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous. Yeah, that's and that's what that's what I was about to say. That scene with the four of them having fun and laughing is showing the danger of like. Yeah, this movie also felt a little Brechtian in a way, which is completely appropriate. Um, He's literally in the film. Okay. Uh, any other sharps? Or we ready no, to I mean, I could sharp the whole damn movie. No, we can move on to flats. Um, I only really have two. And All right. one of them is... So I'm going to start with my superficial one. It's, John Cusack? No, surprisingly. Oh. I mean, I f- even though I feel like we could cut that out of the film, I, I, I'm not flatting it because I still understood and was the artist's plight and... Uh, you know, where do you sell yourself for your art and everything? That I get. I am flatting John Adair negging Olive to dance. (laughs) That's my superficial flat, because I was just like, oh, we're doing so well, and then this happens. Well, he's sort of the asshole of the movie, right? He is, but also, like, he does represent a strong side of it where it's like they didn't so i was reading as well the the history behind it the unions didn't know what cradle were rock was about they just knew that the government was going against them so they were like can't do it (laughs) don't do it yeah well i mean that that may be true but from what i understand they because what basically what they were doing when they abandoned the Maxine Elliott theater and we're moving it to another town and moving it to another uh, theater is starting a new production basically. And if, if Hausman and Orson Welles were going to be the new producers, then they needed to pay everyone three weeks of rehearsal. They needed to pay everyone for a two week guarantee. It's like the union rules. If you're going to put on a show, this is, and so they had no money to do that. So that's why, they wouldn't let their union members do it. It was more like you cannot meet the contractual obligations, Got it. Uh, which, you know, and then it's all, Oh, well, there's good parts of a union. And could you talk, call it a bad part of a union, even though it's hindering well, so them in this moment. And I and the conversation about the union breaks and like, is it harming theater? Is it helping theater that they sort of have a little bit in the movie? I understood the whole uh, you can't perform moment as well as reading about it being like because the the government stepped in to shut down the opening night of it like that's really all they're seeing they're not i don't think they understood i i was reading it as like they didn't understand the the whys mm. and, the, and the details of everything um so to be in a position where his fellow cast his fellow company members are going to to at least support because blitz blitzstein blitzstein did Mm -hmm. uh start it like it was it was billed as him performing it yeah that's it was intended for him to just be him and a piano so i to understand the protest side of it like yeah i understand but like he could have just sat there and said nothing. Like John Adair could have just sat there and said nothing. I feel like 
I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it's a little difficult because it is, it is involving unions. It is involving protests. I'm not sure if he felt like it was scabbing in a way. Maybe that's why he did yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're maybe punching up the drama a bit. But I think they're, yeah, they found that the loophole was if they don't set foot on stage. That was the direction. They cannot be on stage and perform. And so that's why them performing in the house was a loophole. They were not on stage. They were essentially patrons. Well, just... until that one guy steps on stage, the one. Who yeah, which I, I feel like I noticed this last time. I was like, wait, wait, get out of here, old man. But, you know, maybe he doesn't care at that point. But he's yeah. like, fuck it. I'm going to. I can't remember my lines anyway. This is my last show. Um, um, so I have, I do have another flat. I just, I flatted, don't hate me. I flatted the the time jumps just like bitch slapping us in the face. Because uh, they built the scene and the scene was going and then all of a sudden they're like, and four months later. And I went, wait, what? What happened? What? Yeah, but it's just him writing the show. So I mean, how much more of him writing did you want? I mean, I wasn't sure what I was watching. Gotcha. <laughs> I thought I was going to, I thought while we, in this, in that first act, I was like, oh, so it's not about the show? Like, we're not going to see the show? Okay. So I thought it was going to be like more of him writing and being inspired. And then when the second time jump happened, I was also just like, we're now at opening? <laughs> What yeah. is happening, everyone? I think if it was more, uh, even though he changed lots of things in time periods, I think uh, Tim Robbins was also felt very, um, I don't know if beholden's the right word, to, to the realism, to the history of it. I think maybe, you know, I feel like there's lots of instances where shows seemingly rehearse and open within a week. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he didn't want to uh, have plot holes like that, so he... You know, it's like, well, it took him five months to write the show. So, but we're not going to show all that. So we'll skip that four months. And then, well, they rehearsed for two months, actually, which was a super long time because it was the Federal Theater Project. They had the money to rehearse for that long. So they sort of skipped those two months to get right to the, to the well, meet. Yeah. So. And then, I, I mean, I'm of two minds when it comes to this movie. I like what we saw, but I'm also uh, of the mindset of like, I wish we never saw the show. That it was up until the show, or at least we saw her sing and then just like cut to a raucous applause at the end where everyone was like, yay, the show is great. Because I feel like, I don't know, it's kind of, it, it was kind of interesting seeing the behind the scenes things of like the influences and the mindset of New York and the um, Cherry Jones's part. But that's just, I mean, this is me just doing a what if moment. Yeah, I mean that I can see that, but I think the the performance, the the legendary opening night of them standing from the crowd. I mean, that is the story. I think we without needed, that, we wouldn't be talking about the Cradle of Rock. We needed that, yes. Uh, well, I meant for the movie. I wish we for the, for the movie, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like maybe it ended on a title card or something, but I feel like that would have also. Fuck it! I'm just gonna cut this all out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm going to cut, I'm just going to cut it out. Anyway, uh, Mark, what are your flats? Do you have any? I don't know that I do. Um, I mean, this is pretty, a pretty solid movie. And it was just like, those moments are the ones that I was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. So it's not, it's not the worst of the bunch (laughs) of like those, those, 
right three moments i mentioned but like i needed something <laughs> i feel like i, I hear that something. i hear that <laughs> i hear that I feel like um, I, John, the host of this podcast, needed to say something. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I have any any flats for it that I can think of. I, you know, it's like yeah, it's it's either some of the things maybe I want either a little a lot more of or less less of, but I mean, not really. Like I love the whole vaudeville and the death of vaudeville thing. Um, but I'm also like a vaudeville nut. Um, so that's a really interesting topic to me. So it's like, yeah, I, 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 I just think it's, I think it's quite the, the film. It's like, there were, there were moments where I was like, do we need this? And then like five scenes later, it paid off or like, <laughs> or like when he has that, when Bill Murray has that class with Tenacious D and I'm like, okay, this is going on for way too long. <laughs> but then you see them at the end with the dummy doing a a par- not I don't want to say parade. A it's a, a procession. The procession. Procession. Yes, yeah, the processional a of funeral dirge or whatever you, you would call it. Of the of the death of vaudeville and the death of the of the uh federal, federal theater, theater project. project. Um would you add any songs to your life's playlist? I love the song The Cradle Rock. I did it in, in college. Um one of the songs they had me perform at at Amda, uh, the Larry <laughs> Foreman role. Um, oh, so, so you, that, wait, wait. Oh no, you only performed it. You didn't do the show. No, no. At Amda, you don't do full shows. You just do songs. Got so it. I just did the song, the Cradle Will Rock, um, the, yeah. to the title song of the show. Um, I like that one. Joe Worker is powerful, but yeah, um, I don't know that I would play them on my playlist uh, necessarily. I think I would. Casually. Have the cradle will rock. And when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. And then there was a song, Croon Spoon. So Croon Spoon is a song that's performed during the ending credits. It's with Susan Sarandon and Roy. Are you holding on to your seats? Eddie Vedder. Wow. <laughs> I have to go back and listen to it. Because you, because, okay, so you probably i know you've seen rocky horror picture show um susan sarandon has talked about it she's like i'm not a singer i never claimed to be a singer but i did it and so the fact that we see her well we hear her at the end singing i'm like i know that voice that's that's janet vice um and then i found out robinson get his wife to do anything well it was so croon spoon is also written by mark blitzstein uh, blitzstein and is it Incredible Rock? Mm, yes, it is. It is? Mm-hmm. Spoon? Junior Mr. and Sister Mr. sings it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which yep. is, in, which is in, which I find interesting that this movie had Junior Mr. and Sister Mr. played by two people who are about to have a baby. Always having sex. And, yeah. and always fucking. Oh, it's so funny. Uh, and on that note, Mark. <laughs> on that note. On that note, we're done with the episode. Yay! Go watch the movie, everybody. It's brilliant. Uh, what do you have to plug or promote? Oh gosh, uh, just my channel, Broadway by Ghostlight, on the YouTube's. Um, I have. I'm working on my next breakdown, which will hopefully be released in the next few weeks of the Rink, 
that starred Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli by Kander and Ebb. Uh, yeah, it's a very different show, very different from the last breakdown I did, which was Annie Warbucks, the sequel to Annie. I don't think you could get two more different shows back to back. So um, yeah, go check out YouTube. Are you, are you, have you done an episode on the Cradle of Rock? Will you do an episode on I that? I have not. That's a very interesting, interesting, uh, I might, might do a breakdown of the actual show itself. Yeah, that would be interesting. I'm ready. I'm ready. There I'm you ready. go. Mr. Mr. Deep Dive Wikipedia is ready to go. <laughs> it's so great. There's a there's a great special from the 60s with the there was a 60s revival with Jerry Orbach and Mickey Grant. And they um, did an interview with Howard De Silva from the 60s, uh, where he talks about being in the show and he directed a lot of the revivals who played Larry Foreman, the the John Turturro character, directed like five revivals throughout the years before he died. Um there's a great old interview that's on YouTube you can watch um, of him talking about the show and uh, taking credit for a lot of things that I don't think he should take credit for. But that's uh, here and, there. and if you if you were in a production of The Cradle of Rock, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at buttersongpod.gmail.com or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at buttersongpod. Um, you know what? Why don't you also poke mark to do a deep dive into the cradle of rock you know flood his inbox with messages everyone tweet at me or x at me or whatever it's called now and suggest that he puts me on uh (laughs) definitely and if you want to be part of the next episode's conversation (sighs) oh god what are you doing next well we're going to be talking about the season seven musical episode of Riverdale titled chapter 131 Archie the musical oh lordy (laughs) wow oh my god I've seen it already I haven't recorded it but I've seen the episode and oh buckle up Archie the musical (laughs) yeah yeah I, I did speaking of deep diving I did some deep dive on that one so Get ready. Wow. I've never seen any Riverdale. So there is an Archie the musical that was in London, but it's about uh, Archibald Leach, a.k.a. Cary Grant. So probably not the same one they do in Riverdale. Not the same one. It's not about the same one. Archie Andrews. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, Mark, thank you so much for coming back on. And like, I say this a lot and I actually and like, I do mean it every time I say it. Thank you for introducing this movie to me, because like, I don't know if I would have watched it on my own. I'm so honestly. glad I I had I I'm so glad I convinced you to allow me to do a not quite a musical but a musical about but, a musical but a but theater history. We'll yeah, do that. It's, it's you know yeah yeah adjacent yeah. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening and bye for now. Bye bye. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.